This is the Average Guy Network, and you have found Cyber Frontier, show number 56, recorded on June 19th, 2019. Here in Cyber Frontiers, we explore cybersecurity, big data, and the technologies that are shaping the future. If you have questions, comments, or contributions, you can send us an email, jim at theaverageguy.tv. Of course, you can track down that guy down here, over there, up there, wherever he's at. You can send him an email, christian at theaverageguy.tv. Find me on Twitter, at jcollison, and christian is at Whisper. Of course, theaverageguy.tv, powered by Maple Grove Partners. Get uh, uh, secure, reliable, high-speed hosting from people that you know and you trust. And uh, plans start as little as 10 bucks a month. Uh, WordPress optimized. Super awesome. MapleGrovePartners.com. If you haven't subscribed yet, do that as well. We're not super regular on this one. So this is one you want to just kind of leave in your podcast player. And then when we do have a new one, it'll just automatically pop in there for you. Christian, it's been, I don't know, four, five, six weeks. Welcome back. Thanks. It's the wild, wild west of podcasting out on the frontier. Um we know that there is something foul in the water when after 10 years of being a loyal foot soldier for Windows 7 as my main operating system, I finally caved and upgraded it to Windows 10 over oh, the weekend. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, it was a beautiful experience. It brought tears to my eyes. Um, Did you go to I, 1903? I, yeah, I went, I went straight to 1903 um, and then applied all of my <clears throat> customizations that are necessary when on a quasi-cloud uh, like operating system. Um, but yeah, fascinating times. I got to admit, um, having an operating system that is 10 years of crud, so to speak, and all the software and, you know, the stuff, the way I like it. Um, I guess I will give kudos to the fact that at the end of the day, I have a working desktop with, uh, minimal changes in the stuff that got brought over. So, end of the day, it was a success story. Uh, a few things I had to work out as uh, sharp sharp edges, but um, I am now in the new hot fangled era of running a cloud operating system as a private desktop. So um, it's interesting. Very yeah. interesting. Yeah. How long did it take you? Um, you know, it was like, it was, a it was a little over two hours to do the upgrade. Cause the, like when you're doing an upgrade of a OS that buried, it's just going to sit for a while on doing that migration. Um, and then it took me most of the following day on and off, just kind of throughout the day, making the tweaks and slowly unrolling the things that were carried over, but still a little bit incompatible. And I just, uh, rewired a bit. So all in all, really not that bad to kind of have a day of, downtime in terms of productivity um, to address this because there were particular apps I wanted to run on this workstation with the way the rest of my uh, development environment is set up and um, starting to hit that that edge of, well, you're not on Windows 10, so suck it. You can't run it. Um, so I, I took the bite. Um, I should preface this to all the people who are abhorred that Microsoft is my main operating system that I am I have different machines that are all my main operating systems. So I have a main Linux, a main uh, Apple, and a main Windows environment at this point. Um, but my main Windows environment that I've had for a very long time, I've intentionally left at Windows 7 for a very long time. And uh, I think we've talked before that I've experimented with different machine images of Windows 10 on different test boxes that I had to really get comfortable with what I was seeing 
uh, before taking the plunge. But I am proud that I held out four years since the release of Windows 10 before adopting it. I felt like I got to watch a lot of other users uh, pain at my own pleasure and uh, my own profit when it was time for me to do the upgrade. So, yeah, yeah. Welcome, welcome to the world of Windows 10. I think we're going to talk a little bit later uh, about maybe some of the issues or Microsoft's having some security issues um, as well. I have been on the other end of it. I have been out in the insider community, at least on some of my boxes for. Uh, the better part of a couple of years. And I don't, I'm having a hard time telling what version is what anymore. I don't really mm-hmm. even think of it. 1903 kind of came to my, uh, my office this last weekend. And so I spent a bunch of time kind of making sure all the PCs were upgraded. I had a little problem with one of them and, and one of the, uh, one of the miners on burst. Sure. I had to completely redo some things. I had to roll it back, change some things and then actually reinstall 1903. So here's the good news. That was all possible. So I rolled to 1903. It messed up the the miner. I and just insert the name of your program that didn't work. Right. That's yeah. you can just say that. Right. And exactly. then I, I I rolled it back in about 15 minutes. So just you know went into the went into the settings, roll back, and went roll back to 1809. Changed some things, kind of reset everything, and then upgraded again, and it worked the second time. And so that's one out of seven boxes that happened to the rest of them upgraded really cleanly, including some of the the boxes that I have that are slow and small storage have been, they've really figured out how to get this. You know, if you, if you always had a 32 gig hard drive, so to speak, uh, some of these really small form factor PCs, you know, the old windows 10, you were kind of host. It, you, you'd have to do this song and dance and tap your head and, and you know, your belly. Now, uh, they just work, which is kind of crazy. And so there are some good and bad, I think, to the upgrade cycle. I it, I was going to wait again with 1903, just wait a couple weeks until it kind of forced me or, you know, and now they have a new with uh, 1903. It's actually an option. It doesn't force you to do it. It kind of sits there in the update section and says, hey, when you're ready, yep. you can update. It's like days of old, right? Uh, and so, um, pause feature now, I think is how they, yeah, they do. They have a 30, 30 or 35 day pause too, even for home users. Now you can do that. So if you haven't upgraded yet, I still might, I still might wait a little bit. I, I, you know, if you don't have to, I have my settings set to wait because (laughs) there's no bleeding edge feature that as an everyday user, you must have the day it comes out with Microsoft. Yeah. 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 No, that's for sure. Christian, what uh, Ken's kind of asking quickly what are kind of some of those if you can give us some idea of Mm -hmm. what you want to disclose from how you kind of change it or how you modify it yeah so i actually so microsoft actually provides a lot of tools both in the pre-windows 10 days you might have heard it as a sysprep which believe it or not still works in windows 10 um, where basically you install a vanilla Windows 10 installation, and then you kind of customize all the bolts and nuts and widgets the way you want it, and then you create your own custom install image from the sysprep so that you don't have to redo all of the things when you set up a new Windows 10 box. And this is um, very common in the enterprise, right? You want to get the image that your enterprise organization is going to roll out, and, and that's the end of it. Um, more common to see on enterprise editions, obviously, but you can image any type of um, licensed version of Windows, so the Pro, Home, etc., and you can create your own custom images of each of those um, such that when it's time to plug and play your product key in, you're not redoing all that setup after Windows installs. It's just exactly the way you imaged it. So 
Um, I had spent uh, one of my Christian lab projects has uh, been at uh, kind of Q1 of 2019 um, was getting a sysprep environment set up and um, actually using VirtualBox to just kind of see what I really wanted out of a Windows 10 image. Um, a lot of it was around the stability of it. So we talked about um, delaying Windows updates and making sure that instead of being on the bleeding edge channel, you're on the what they call the semi-annual release channel, um, which reduces the number of heavy hitting feature updates you're going to get to every six months. And then in addition to that, configuring it so that only security updates are the things that get applied immediately and feature updates get delayed by a minimum of up to a month. Um, on the kind of cleanliness side of the house, I really don't like the cluttered look of when you install Windows 10 by default, that start menu is cluttered with a bunch of apps and tiles and and uh, just Microsoft uh, UXP type apps running in the background that um, I'm not really interested in. I, I like more of the conventional Windows 7 desktop style. Um, so my image removes all of those tiles that are there by default, uninstalls all of the default um, Windows Store type applications that get bundled with the operating system, um, such that when I load my user profile, um, it's just the things I care about and the start menu is decluttered and I have a nice clean consolidated view. Um, I also use a lot of the common uh, privacy tools, whether it's Shut Up 10 or otherwise to um, make sure I have a clean boot sequence that I'm not sending more telemetry than I need to, et cetera. Um, so there's, there's a long laundry list there that I've been really spending some time researching and getting familiar with to understand what are the common sense things you can do that are low cost, high yield for having a cleaner operating system image to start with. Um, and then there's also the edge device protection really. So, you know, I continue to be an avid PFSense user. Uh, really like the overall product that PFSense puts out. And I invest a lot of time into what I call whitelist-based networking approaches. Um, so that means um, really trying to get my network down to just the things I care about actually having come in and out of my network. Um, and so blocking the unnecessary advertising uh, has always been a traditional use case, but also blocking the unnecessary um Microsoft support telemetry um, that I, I just don't need. Um, so it's it's been an interesting uh, learning scale, but that's that's kind of the realm of the things I'm looking at. I'm not really looking at, you know, reinventing the wheel here, really just taking advantage of the settings, A, that Microsoft is already providing that people might not be configuring out of the box. Um, and then also just kind of applying some common sense, hardening reliability and security scope to the OS. Yeah, not, I'm sure no shock to most people, but I go the opposite direction, which is I try to keep everything just as absolutely stock as possible. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. That has just, over the last couple of years, that has worked really well for me. It drives my family crazy because, you know, my daughter will be like, don't you change anything? And I'm kind of like, no, actually, I want to try and just keep it as stock as possible. And um, even been trying to run most of the antivirus. They've, 1903's got some new ransomware. Um, pieces and, you know, try and keep it average, you know, average yeah. guy kind of thing. And so yeah. um, that seems to, that seems to work or has worked for me, you know, got me thinking actually not as many systems of that. I thought I have seven down here have upgraded to 1903 as I thought. So my main mm -hmm. PC we're talking on here, I thought it upgraded. It's still 1809 okay. and uh, I need to do 1903 over the weekend. 
Maybe. I think maybe I'll just leave it. I'm going to have two podcasts to produce, so sure. I don't think I'm going to be uh, uh, screwing with it too much. All right. Yeah. We came to talk some security. That's just kind of a good update on uh, what's going on in the Windows world. Christian, I thought uh, non-Windows systems were completely unhackable, right? Yes. They're completely... Un- is that true? I mean, is yeah. that true and honest? Are they it's completely- a computer, it must be... Uh, it must be uh, a non-Windows right? PC. It's completely safe, apparently. Yeah, so this was uh, something that is hot off the press this week. Uh, so exciting timeline with when we decided to record. But um, all the rage this week in the security industry is the uh, SAC panic. So um, you'll hear it referenced as a TCP SAC panic. And this is actually discovered by the Netflix security team, which is pretty great. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, Netflix had... Um, published four CVEs all against this new realm of attack vector known as um, basically panicking the SAC stack. Now, what do I mean by that? So SAC stands for Selective TCP Acknowledgement, S-A-C-K. And this is really exciting. So, you know, TCP is fundamental internet technologies, right? So really... Um, in this case, we're talking pretty much all implementations of Linux and free BSD are impacted by this. Um, I have not yet done the research as to why um, Microsoft and Apple's implementation of this specification um, didn't go down the same rabbit hole. Uh, but essentially, two types of networking transport layers in the world. You have TCP <clears throat> and UDP. Um, your TCP or, or or your kind of reliable transport control protocol is going to be what all your websites, all your banking, all of the things that need an acknowledgement run off of. Um, UDP is going to be your video streaming, your peer-to-peer things that I can send it and forget it. Like if I lose one pixel out of my 4K of pixels, I don't care if I lost that data frame, I'm never going to know the difference. Um, so fundamental internet stack, um, I have to have a um, layer four transmission control protocol that whenever I request a website, the very first thing my computer does is it does what's called a TCP handshake. So I send my initial um, request. I get an acknowledgement back from the server saying, hey, I received your request, et cetera. Um, And then I sync with Parity by acknowledging that and sending my own uh, synchronization request back. So this this three-way handshake is what ends up actually opening the connection where you're computer can then request data from the web server in question. Um, So this is very low in the stack uh, in networking uh, from a kernel perspective, because the kernel has to implement the kind of fundamental TCP IP driver stack that allows networking to happen at the operating system level. So that's kind of the fundamental backdrop here. Um, What we're talking about specifically with a um, SAC panic is the way the Linux operating system implements TCP, um, it kind of implements its own optimization known as selective TCP acknowledgement. So what happens is the whole point of, the whole reason we do an acknowledgement is so that if I lose a frame as the receiver of the data, I can re-request the frames that I missed. So let's say I'm looking for packets one through 20. And these packets, the whole point of TCP is that it gets reassembled in order. So the the packets can fire and I might get packet 54 and then packet 20 and then packet one, et cetera. At the end of the day, 
what my computer has to do because it can't guarantee order of delivery of those packet numbers, it has to sequentially reframe them one, two, three, four, five. When it does that process of sequentially reordering them, it's gonna look and say, either A, everything's there, great, I can move on with my life, or it's gonna say, wait a second, I lost packet 21 for some reason, I need packet 21 back, okay? Um, if we were to do this as a buffered approach where I send you like 1500 packets at a time and you tell me if you got them all or not, and you were missing one in the middle in a not in a world where SAC doesn't exist in the Linux operating system, um, I would have to potentially resend a whole portion of that buffer as opposed to just that one packet that I'm missing in the control frame. Um, so what, what SAC is doing, um, is allowing the receiver of the data to notify the sender that, hey, I received an out of order segment. Like for example, um, I received everything from um, zero up through eight um, and I expect number nine next, but hey, I also received um, like 20 through 30. So that would mean, hmm, I'm gonna need everything from eight to 19 in order to give me everything in that range from zero to 30. Um, so rather than resending that whole thing, it's allowing me to selectively ask the sender of the data to give me these specific frames. What a SAC panic is doing is the SAC is actually the Linux data structure that is, think of it as a socket buffer more or less. And what that socket buffer can do is it can track at most up to 17 segments at a time. So as my machine is acknowledging packets that are being sent, data is being added and removed from the structure or perhaps consolidated. Um, and in the process, the vulnerability that, that is being exploited here is that I am, I am crafting TCP requests that have known problems in their um, stream in such a way that I can trick the Linux operating system into holding more than the 17 segments that should be in that data buffer. Now, Linux being the super secure Fort Knox that we all know and love, doesn't you don't want to have a buffer overflow, that data structure is in a very protected part of memory, etc. So if I'm suddenly outside of larger than the 17 segments that I'm supposed to be able to store in this part of the kernel, guess what? The Linux operating system goes into a kernel panic and the box resets. So it sounds like from one perspective, the security model works here. Hey, I had a fundamental problem with the data structure that exists down at the kernel level and I, the operating system, realize I have a potential violation of my memory space and I panic and I reboot. Awesome. Awful news is that because that panic can be insinuated from the outside of the operating system by me communicating with you over an IP-based internet network, I've fundamentally just created a mechanism to uh, offer a distributed denial of service attack. So if you're a data center and you're running 10,000 Linux machines and I want to take your data center down, I can just start crafting these malicious packets, sending them to each one of your hosts, and because I will eventually, hopefully be able to get that right sequence where your OS is going to store more than 17 frames in that buffer, one by one, your instances are going to start kernel panicking and rebooting. So I can directly impact 
the availability of your service, and I can do it in a widespread manner. So this is really a fantastical um, new attack vector because when we think about um, the types of DOS attacks that we see today, many of them uh, have been crafted at the HTTP server level. Um, and so the fact that we're seeing something down at layer four um, as opposed to layer seven really excites me. Um, and the fact that it it gets right into the low-level kernel as opposed to the web server is also very exciting. It's not necessarily that you're gaining access to the machine or anything like that, but um, the fact that I have this very low-level raw mechanism that's accessible remotely to impact the running state of your box, um, that's a very powerful tool. Um, because, you know, uh, smart Linux wizards know that this is a very powerful tool, um, these things get embargoed ahead of time. Um, the vendors like Netflix that discover these things uh, responsibly disclose them, talk to the internal Linux kernel community on best ways to go forth about patching and correcting them. And by the time they release something of this magnitude, all your core big providers have already been patched. So this is not something that is running out in the wild just ready for the taking. Obviously, if you run your own infrastructure or your small to medium business or you're doing some type of hosting or your own, definitely make sure you go get your latest upstream kernel patch and reboot if you're in a Linux environment. Uh, but if you're on your major cloud providers, this is an already mitigated issue for you. Uh, but really a fantastic, um, I don't know, I get really excited about new ways of thinking about attack vectors to old problems. Like DDoS is a very old problem. It's a very well-defined problem. To me, it's a very exhausting problem because DOS is boring for the most part. This kind of brought a new tasty way of thinking about DOS that was very exciting. Um, and, you know, it really kind of reminded me as a, um, at a smaller scale, but reminded me of a network version of Spectre and Meltdown, only in the sense that Spectre and Meltdown brought a very new way of thinking about attacking um, uh, computer hardware in a way that's fundamentally changing how we think about designing kernel architectures. Now we're talking about a network vulnerability that's making us think about how we implement kernel architectures uh, properly. So uh, this was this hit it out of the park for me uh, as, as newsworthy this week, uh, and I've really enjoyed following this. Christian, something like PFSense, which... You know, would it be affected by something like this? Is that, or you know, for the average user, if they were using that, would it would it show up or or no? Yeah, great great point. So um, maybe some folks don't know that PFSense is built off of the FreeBSD operating system, and the FreeBSD operating system is in this scope of vulnerabilities. Um, I don't believe FreeBSD. So there were four variations of this that came out. Um, I believe FreeBSD. I know was at least vulnerable to one of the four. I'm not sure about the other three um, precisely. However, um, the implication here is that you as a PFSense user would need to be allowing some kind of inbound traffic that uses TCP, um, um, either forwarding to something on the PFSense box or forwarding to an internal client that's running Linux. So yeah, maybe there's some possibilities, but probably low impact for PFSense in the in the sense that it's rare for uh, a PFSense user, especially a home PFSense user, 
um, to expose things that are running directly on the gateway. Uh, oftentimes, the gateway is being used to forward to internal services downstream that may be impacted by it. Um, I'm not sure if um, the process of doing that translation um, would also impact uh the PFSense kernel as well. That is possible, um, but you would basically need to be have a, a lot of different services that a malicious actor knew about that you were forwarding on your gateway that they were then sitting there and playing with. So Ken, Ken asks in chat, like, what about remote uh, web admin access? Is that something that would yeah you, so, you've opened up the port? So web is TCP. Um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. in a way, is it possible? Yes. But like remote web access, when I hear that word, I think Microsoft remote web access, which is a Windows kernel. So the downstream server isn't going to get uh, impacted at worst. If there is the ability for NAT forwarding to also be impacted in this way in the PFSense kernel, your PFSense gateway might be the thing that panics and reboots, not the remote web access server. And we're not talking about malicious access to the box. We're talking Correct. about either consuming resources, right? So CPU goes, CPU spikes, yep. or uh, it reboots. And it, you could, I guess you could continue to attack it. It would reboot, come back on, attack it, reboot, come back on, right? That's so right. it's constantly going through a reboot, a reboot cycle. Would you? Would there be a way to discover this vulnerability? I mean, could you scan systems and see if it's running a particular instance and not patched, and then be able to run something against it? Would that would that be possible? Yeah. So far, there's um, they've published what kernel versions uh, have the fix. So you should be able to go and find and see if your current Linux version is running um, an exploited version. I do PFSense updates pretty regularly, and I'm just going to check right now real quick while we're live on air, but I don't believe I've seen the downstream patch come out for FreeBSD yet, which means that um, PFSense getting its um, patches from FreeBSD for something like this, um, I'm not I'm not seeing it yet in uh, the PFSense dashboard as something they've pushed as a critical security update. So either they've identified that it's not uh, going to impact this scenario or um, the, so the version of FreeBSD in the latest PFSense is uh, version 11.2.x of the FreeBSD kernel. Um, so I'd, I'd have to check and look at those versions and see what's going on. But um, Joe, Joe brings up Unraid. That's another real popular uh, piece of software in our community that is based on one of these variants. I don't know which one. Would that fall into the same boat? Not many are putting their Unraid servers in public Correct. facing, right? Correct. But, yeah. I mean, and, and again, you have to ask yourself, like, why would a why would an attacker want to DOS your home Unraid server, right? right? Yeah. Like, we're talking about people who would want to go after, um, like, large websites or cloud infrastructure or, you know, manage things where it's in their interest to take it down, right? There's not much profit motive or or reason to go after home users in this particular exploit. Yeah, with uh, with many more players uh, in much bigger situations, this mm -hmm. would be a situation, right? They're not going to get any information, but they could begin to just wreak havoc. Speaking yeah. of wreaking havoc, Target has been the target of havoc. Target. Um, I you know I hate I hate they paid what 160 million dollars or something like this in uh, fines no. the last time. That now, no no breach, so to speak, no customer information, but they've certainly had trouble taking people's money. And 
um, social has turned on them. Like <laughs> the last week or two or whenever this, I, I, you know, whenever this was, um, has not been kind to them. Talk a little bit about what's going on there at Target. Yeah, so um, I, I kind of call it the false flag operation, right? I think when this headline first hit over the weekend, people were like, oh my gosh, Target breach. Um, and it turned out just to be literally a an outage for several hours, uh, for sure. And then it, I believe, happened again a second time um, uh, for a second day in a row. And really, I mean, obviously there's customer impact of, I got to go to an ATM, get out cash, et cetera, to complete my purchase. That's not a great customer experience. Um, but Target says in a statement yesterday that it confirmed it was not a data breach or security related issue and that quote, no guest information was compromised at any time. Um, what's really fascinating is that this looked and smelled like all the ingredients for, you know, walking data breach coming through the front door. The reality was, um, the company blamed an outage on a quote, internal technology issue without disclosing specifics. Um, of course, those specifics were later uh, rumor wheeled in a uh, USA Today article that came out um, on the 16th of June. And they basically attributed it to um, a vendor known as NCR um, and, and, Again, saying it wasn't specific to the target technology system, but again, that's for the first outage. Um, not much in information about the second outage um, and really some kind of bland, boring commentary in that article about um, the fact that, you know, weekends are a normal maintenance window for IT shops. So uh, this is, you know, normal for most people, except when you're retail, your biggest shoppers are coming in on the weekends. So like maybe you don't want to have that kind of upgrade cycle. Um, but one of the things that fascinates me about this, and I think of it more just from a putting on my software engineering hat and not my security hat is designing systems that are fault tolerant, right? And it's a nice maxim to have. I, I, I think any software engineer will concede that it always sounds good on paper. It's always harder in practice, um, building systems that are truly, fault tolerant, redundant, and scalable, um, you're bound to have at some point some what we call sharp edges or, or learning learning pains and in, in growing with that. Um, and it's going to vary by the maturity of the organization developing that type of software. Um, what's notable to me about this is that the type of IT maintenance outage could cause this type of widespread um inability to process payments. Um, and, and I guess what I mean by that in a way is, you know, when you think about a lot of small mom and pop shops or other places that do credit card transactions, um, some of those folks do online processing, right? They have a little handheld thing and they jam in the credit card and so forth. And yet it's very effective in the sense that, um, offline payment infrastructure then connects and process payments, et cetera. You would think if, an organization as large as Target had some type of central-based outage that, let's just say, impacted connectivity, that there would still be local site redundancy for that particular store to get out and do transactions through an alternative payment gateway or through a separate system or queue up those transactions um, and, and wait for the recovery so that yeah, you might be taking a risk on if someone's credit card gets declined for some reason, 
um, and then you don't have that payment info and the customers walked out, et cetera. Um, but it's an interesting dialogue on like a what is the customer experience and B um, when talking about payment processor technology, what are the ways that online retail or I'm sorry, in-store retailers are solving the problem of redundant payment gateways because that type of outage smells very much like you're relying on one single vendor to provide this big layer of like underlying backbone for you. And you don't really have a plan B if that backbone goes out. And that's not an exciting, warm and fuzzy feeling as a customer to see. So, and again, I'm speculating only in the absence of Target providing more data on what actually happened, right? But these are the types of questions I immediately start to ask as, a, as an engineer. Yeah, yeah. And you might have a backup system that takes six hours to get, you know, you think of the outage of being a major outage, you're going to be out for a day, you're going to have a backup scenario, but it may take six to nine hours for that to deploy through the system. Um, yeah. we, we know store forward or batch, you know, keeping batch doesn't work. That was an experiment that banks and retail tried in the nineties and early two thousands and customers and fraud, you know, people who do fraud would regularly wait for those kinds of situations, we just talk about DDoS, att maybe attack a system, take it down, and then go in knowing that the, the store would go to a payment system of saying, well, we're going to limit it to $200. And all of a sudden, every transaction is $200, <laughs> you know, and, and massive fraud takes place. Um, I do, it is interesting, Christian, and I, it, that redundancy of being able to do a fast failover to a new, the, you know, the payment processing systems are expensive gigantic fees and lots of technology, especially if you think about a target, think about Walmart. Like if something like this, I mean, be interesting to know what they do with their infrastructure. Target certainly is that next rung up and a lot of people shop at Target just because they won't shop at Walmart for whatever reasons and probably good ones. But it, it is, I do, I agree with you. It, it's an interesting, I think, study, especially in large retail, big box stores, it's been a while since we've heard of an outage like this where they just couldn't take credit cards. Here's the funny thing about this. They still took cash. So it's not like you couldn't buy anything, but we as a consumer, nobody carries cash anymore. I mean, right. it's just, it's, it's just one of those, you know, we have really gotten down to that point where cash just isn't. And somebody pulled out cash the other day and was paying with it. I'm like, what is that? Like, I haven't, I haven't seen cash in three or four years, it feels like, right? Or carried it around. It's weird to have a dollar in my pocket to go across the bridge here uh, in Bellevue. So super interesting. One of the um, the statements that's Schmidt, who Eric Schmidt, the chief information security officer at Butler University in Annapolis, who's quoted in this article, and you quoted it too. I wasn't surprised. Sometimes maintenance goes on over the weekend. But he says, you know, hey, sometimes don't, upgrades don't go as planned. NCR, the vendor, is probably the one responsible. I guarantee you there are people at NCR. They're a real popular payment processing vendor. I guarantee you there are people uh, whose jobs are in jeopardy at the moment when you just think about the millions of dollars or potential dollars lost in a couple hours at Target. Um, it's got to be it's got to be huge. Interestingly enough, Target's last widespread register outage happened June 15th, 2014. Exactly five years to the day. There you have right? it. Right? <laughs> there you have it. It's, it's like kinda, the stars align. That, uh, that is kind of scary. So, it, you know, I'm actually surprised it doesn't happen more often. But maybe the big box stores, 
you know, the Walmarts, the Targets, the if you fill in the blanks, Home Depot, Office Depot, Lowe's, some of those stores, Best Buy. Uh, I don't know. Maybe they've got a more of a backup system, like you're saying. Um, that's in place. We started the show by talking about some Microsoft updates. Uh, Christian, you say in the notes here, a uh, roll-up of recent Microsoft security events as well. You've got a few things to cover when it comes to our friends in Redmond. Yeah, there's been interesting things going on. You've seen a lot of security patching come out in the last six weeks from Microsoft. I guess I'll, I'll highlight a couple on the show tonight. Um, the two that I'm thinking of right now are both uh, RDP-related, actually. Uh, the first one was that uh, in uh, beginning of the month in June, Microsoft um, dismissed a reported bug as a quote-unquote feature, um, which is the favorite term engineers say when they really want you to believe a bug is a feature. Um, that's not a bug. That's a feature. We, we like to say an undocumented feature. Yeah, an undocumented feature. Exactly. Um, and so this particular um, bug was disclosed at a cert at Carnegie Mellon, and it it stems from basically network level authentication. Um, and, and that's a mechanism that really allows you to protect your Windows machine um, at the time you are enabling and using the remote desktop protocol. Um, and specifically, it prevents uh, remote login to the machine without first having that machine authenticate itself on the network and say, you know, I am this machine, trust this machine, etc. cetera. Um, with the release of Windows 10 1903, um, Microsoft changed the way network level authentication works to basically cache the client's login on the RDP host so that you can basically have a quick resume login if you lose connectivity. Um, what's interesting about that is that, um, and again, this is also paraphrasing um, Sophos, which did a really nice write-up on this. We'll include it in the show notes. Um, the change enables um, an attacker to circumvent the lock screen um, in that scenario where the credential gets cached. So, an example of something that doesn't sound like a big deal, but when you think about how many times in an enterprise have you had to press control alt delete before you can get to your login screen, the reason for that is, is in my opinion, for this very thing of like not being able to be in a state where something can remotely coerce either a cache credential or, or in the case of control alt delete, part of it is actually to bypass the ability for something on the machine to act as a keylogger or bypass keystrokes, right? Actually have physical presence at the machine before a password can be entered. Um, and it also, you know, a lot of enterprises integrate with multi-factor authentication. So this also would result in bypassing um, that because you'd be using these cache credentials. And of course, Microsoft responds by explaining this is a feature, not a bug. Um, and we um, we actually, they, they quote, it is, quote, what you are observing is Windows Server honoring network level authentication, which requires user credentials to allow connections to proceed in the earliest phase of connection. Those same creds are used logging the user into a session or reconnecting. As long as it's connected, the client will cache the credentials used for connecting and reuse them when it needs to auto reconnect so it can bypass NLA. Um, but these colleagues kind of dispute. It's very interesting where security industry runs up against Microsoft and they, you know, almost, I would say, 
north of 95% of these types of disclosures would be immediately addressed. Uh, the fact that there was pushback on this one, kind of interesting uh, anecdote. Uh, so take it for what you will. Um, this is interesting because preceding this, two weeks prior in the middle of May, uh, Microsoft just kind of drops a cute little bombshell on the, the TechNet blog entitled, Prevent a worm by updating remote desktop services. Um, and I'll, I'll kind of paraphrase the blog post, but, you know, quote, today Microsoft released a fix for critical remote code execution vulnerability in remote desktop services. So this was the legacy terminal services component of many Windows old, older Windows operating systems. RDP itself is not vulnerable. Again, another pre-authentication layer. Um, but what's scary about this is that the vulnerability is wormable, meaning that future malware that can exploit this vulnerability could then propagate to other machines very quickly, like you would see with ransomware, um, and how quickly that it spread back in 2017. Um, more interesting is that um, you know vulnerable in-support systems include Windows 7, 2008 R2, etc., um, and you can find uh, downloads for those versions to. Um, uh, patch and update them, but there's also out of support versions like server 03 and XP. So, um, you know, you'd still be amazed how many people run those operating systems. Um, and you know, those folks, the guidance is, Hey, you got to get to a real operating system. Um, so you would have seen this come out as an emerging, um, monthly or quarterly security update on the windows seven update line. Um, but, Interestingly, is that this was partially mitigated by having proper network level authentication enabled. So a lot of interesting stuff like this going on with Microsoft. Um, in general, I've seen a combination of these types of exploits coming out uh, against Microsoft operating systems in combination with bad Windows update patches for Windows 10, one of the inherent reasons why I'm you know, have always been very skeptical about the operating system and it's kind of continuous development and integration into home users' lives. Um, so it, it's it's interesting. The, the end state in many cases is that like some of the Microsoft updates are causing just as much productivity harm as potential vulnerabilities and exploits that industry has to go deal with. Um, so it was, it's also been a very hot month for the Microsoft platform in general when we talk about the types of security updates that have been coming down the pike. Anything, um, I, I'd heard that maybe there was some zero-day exploit out there yes. as well? Yeah, yeah, that uh, great call out. So that was probably the bigger one of the ones that uh, I talked about so far. Um, uh, one of the security researchers known as Sandbox Escaper, um, her or she, um, is not really a known entity, and she's very well known for just dumping stuff out in the wild that isn't responsibly disclosed. So in the past, stuff that she's disclosed, you have seen in the wild in real attacks. Um, she had uh, supposedly four um, local privilege escalation zero days last year that were all just pushed out into the wild. And um, the, the first one that is... Uh, that she did in 2018 was a um, vulnerability in local procedure call stack. And that one was used in active malware campaigns for weeks after its release, which how exciting. Um, but 
This particular vulnerability that um, also came out in the end of May timeframe. So we really we missed a lot of Cyber Frontiers goodness on the uh, end of May timeframe. But um, this is, uh, again, we're talking in the realm of local privilege escalation. So the vulnerability by itself doesn't buy you anything. But attackers, again, try to collect and aggregate a series of vulnerabilities in their toolkit such that once they get initial access on a box through some vector that offers minimal privileges, they can use another vulnerability that's a AKA local privilege escalation to then get broader access to the box and keep drilling down. Um, so according to the description in this one, the vulnerability actually resides in Windows Task Scheduler, which is really fascinating because the attackers can run a mail form job that basically exploits the flaw in the way um, task scheduler processes um, access control list permissions for for files, and that allows the that the hacker to escalate a low privileged uh, system account to admin access, which in turn gives you the whole whole kit and caboodle. Um, what's also fascinating is that the zero day was only originally tested for Windows 10 32 bit, um, but you know, task scheduler and the code base that makes up Windows task scheduler goes all the way back to Windows XP. And so um, I don't think it would take very much at all for this zero day to be adapted to work across the Windows operating system uh, platform. And again, you run into that scenario where if you get it to work back in those old operating systems that are no longer supported, or you have a case where like Windows 7 is still used by a big big, big chunk of the um, community, and it's going to go end of life at the end of this year. So they'll stop issuing security updates for that OS. Um, you get another local privilege escalation like this. Now it becomes even more powerful because now you're potentially looping in all those Windows 7 OSs that haven't been upgraded yet um, that um, also are local privilege escalation uh, capabilities. So um what a time to be alive. One of the things that reminds me about Windows 10 is that as much as it's become a cloud operating system, um, the Windows operating system is a very much a living, breathing organism down to the point where there are some components that still exist in Windows 10 to this day that you could probably go back and find very, very early on implementations of in Windows 2000, maybe even further back into some of the Windows NT type stuff. You won't see a lot of that anymore, but still some of it. Um, I'm also reminded by a very uh, old school game I play that's been out since 1998 called Star Wars Galactic Battlegrounds. Um, more, most geeks will know it by the name of Age of Empires 2, which was an iconic game engine that Microsoft came out with back in the days of Windows 98 and onward. Um, and this ran off of what was called Microsoft Direct Play, which was pre-DirectX. So all your hot games today run off DirectX 12. They have all these advanced um, graphics capabilities that game uh, producers use and all the graphics cards leverage that DirectX standard when providing you these amaz amazing 4K views. Um, old school games like Age of Empires runs on direct play, which is pre-DirectX 8. So think old school graphical environment. Um, believe it or not, um, Microsoft is nice to the kindred geeks like myself, and they offer legacy component support for direct play in a modern Windows 10 operating system. So they literally have ported code that has existed for a minimum of 20 years, if not more, um, because I think it did go back 
I think it's early roots were either at the end of Windows 95 or the beginning of Windows 98, a little spotty on that. But TLDR, code lives, breathes, persists, and iterate over time. And then on top of that, Microsoft has this huge push for ensuring compatibility on their platforms uh, in their modern day platforms, which is one of the things I actually appreciate about Windows 10. Um, the result of that is that if you can find a vulnerability that kind of goes back all the way through that history, you can now thread the needle of time and create local privilege escalations that kind of work across the iterative stack of Microsoft operating systems. Do I need, as a user, do I need to be concerned about these, you know, these zero day? Not as much. If you're on a modern operating system like Windows 10 and you are immediately accepting those security patches and not delaying them like the feature patches, which I, I kind of do recommend to, to users who want stability, um, then you're you're covered from stuff like this. It's from people who are not doing updates or are on pre-Windows 10 where it's, for the most part, people would maybe download updates but not install them and so forth. Um, yeah, that's where the concern starts to bake in more and more. Okay. And, um, and to be fair, we blasted a little bit on Microsoft, but Google has not been without its issues um, as well. I haven't heard about these, so yeah. thanks for bringing them up. Oh, yeah, and uh, you know, switching the spectrums, uh, going back to a lack of availability, this has kind of been Google's MO over the last month. Um, they had two pretty bad events. Um, one, they had, a, they had a major outage of Google uh, Cloud, the Google Cloud platform, um, which was not ideal because... Obviously, like once Google invests all this money into building their own Google Cloud, you're you can you can bet on it that Google's gonna then build all their services on top of that cloud and so forth. So they had virtually all of the Google stack from like a customer perspective of like Google Drive, Google Calendar, et cetera, et cetera, or like all red um, at the beginning of June. And it was due to a networking issue from an upstream L3 provider that somehow really just took down a link that that Google ate it pretty hard. Um, and additionally, um, a Google employee anonymously reported that um, it disrupted also their internal tooling that they used to communicate about company outages. So it was also paralyzing their internal response to be able to deal with this um, issue. Um, and this is not just Google, to be clear, um, in January, a similar uh, level three outage had caused auth stack to go down for all of Microsoft Azure. Um, so it's a possible possibility thing. This is why you have redundant links, redundant service providers, et cetera. So unclear to me specifically why this network outage was not something they could reroute around quickly, um, but it did take down a big broad spectrum of their ability to authenticate and log into your Google, use your Google services. Gmail was down for a couple hours, et cetera. Um, and then like a ringing from the, from the past um, on June 18th, which was yesterday, uh, the day before recording the show, um, Google Cloud and G Suite had another um, uptime sputter where Google Calendar was down um, for quite some period of time. Um, and, you know, at least it was scoped to just, uh, the calendar in this case, but it's been a availability challenge for Google, um, in the last few weeks, two incidents don't necessarily seem related, um, but definitely 
um, calls into question um, what's the source of some of these availability concerns for Google. Well, and it gets a little sticky when now Google, who owns Nest, has devices that can connect that you're trying to maybe unlock or get security information from or get, you know, alerts of things that are going on that when you have outages like this, um, could it affect your, the AC shuts off in your house, right? And it's 115 degrees outside. Does that seem to be a problem? Yeah, exactly. So one of the things is, of course, now we have all these newfangled Internet of Things devices. And if you went and bought a Google Nest, yeah, you weren't able to really control your thermostat or in some cases, even unlock your doors. So um, welcome to the chaos of Internet of Things when it's all powered by the cloud. So really uh, crazy. On Saturday morning, uh, 5 a.m., I am woken up by my wife who says, hey, have you heard this crash? I'm like, no, I was sleeping. But there was a crash. She's like, yeah, I heard this, this, you know, and then, and the power went off. Hmm. And so everything was out in the house. And, and so, uh, I don't know. We, we went around. I, all my UPSs are beeping. Right. And so I go down, I, computers are still running, which is great. My UPSs worked. Right. So I, I safely shut them down, send a few notes to folks and say, uh, I'm going back to bed. So five 30, I'm back in bed, but eight, or so I get up, power is still off. She goes to the store to do some stuff. It comes on about 8.30. And sure enough, a garbage truck had lost control and run into a pole just down the street. Wow. Took it, taken out power. This doesn't happen very often. Like yeah. took out the pole and the internet. Power came up about 8.30. Internet didn't come up till close to noon. I ended up running into work to do Ask the Podcast Coach on Saturday morning. Um, but it was one of those things where the power came up, elect all the, you know, the Amazon devices came on. Everything was up, but we couldn't turn on lights with our voice. We couldn't. I mean, there's all that automation didn't work because we did. I didn't have an internet connection. And that kind of got me thinking like, okay, I need to have a really viable option. You you mentioned NCR and Target and having a backup. I probably need to think a little bit better about my internet backup solution. So thinking through what would I do to get my phone now put in the, you know, in between the, the, you know, the modem and the, the router for the house, what could I do, Christian? And maybe I'll just ask you, we, this is not in the show notes. What should I do if I wanted to use my phone to run the whole house at that point? But there, what, what, what do you think are my options to kind of insert that in between without having to do a bunch of mumbo jumbo, you know, to get it done? Yeah. So I kind of believe in, um, if you're really like in that home geek mode and you have something like a PF sense, um, and actually I don't do this today, so I guess I can't recommend testimonials to it, but if you have a device that can do Wi-Fi um, and you put a Wi-Fi card in your PF sense box, which is acting as your gateway for everything else, then when you have an outage and you have something like an iPhone on Verizon that has unlimited data and can hotspot, you you set your PFSense gateway to Wi-Fi connect to your phone's hotspot, and then your whole house is lit up against that phone phone connection. Um, so if you need to temporarily get out for a period of time and you're not dealing with cables, that's a very fast way to not have to disturb any of the devices in your home, but have them get out some type of internet connection. Mm-hmm. Now, you're not going to want to have 20 devices go Netflix streaming off of that, and you're going to have to be careful of your data caps, but at least it will allow people to stay on the internet and, and 
get things like their nest and, and so forth when your local internet fiber is cut. Yeah. Now I don't, I've taken PFSense out and I have just a bit defender box that I'm using. I really, really like, but maybe that's a case to have a piece of hardware sitting around waiting for that moment to say, okay, it's good. You know, I, I'm going to insert this in, turn it on, insert it in, connect it to my phone and then get connected to the internet. Joe's asking, wasn't that the selling point of Hubitat? That was a, vendor we had had on that kind of simplifies or brings together all of this. Um, none of the uh, Alexa devices would connect to and listen to us. Even with no internet, they don't work. They don't, they don't take commands, even on the local network, which is kind of interesting, Christian. Talk about fault tolerance. How cool would it be that even these, these Amazon devices would um, somehow even offline have something in them. You talk about caching or, you know, something to say, okay, I understand I'm on a local network. While I don't have internet, I'll still kind of work for the home automation stuff that's around me. I don't, yeah. I mean, that that's certainly, that doesn't work today. And, and I, I don't know about that for Google. I'm pretty sure no internet, nothing works. These devices have to make a connection back home to do their thing. But kind of interesting to think, what would it take for them to at least have minimal operation mode with no internet. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, something to think about. Uh, one more in Facebook. And man, uh, this is one I have noticed because I run all these Facebook groups, both for you know the average guy.tv oh, yeah. and what I do for Gallup. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I have just seen all these fake accounts pop up and then people jumping in that if you do let them in, then they look, some of them look pretty real. And I'm not surprised Facebook's having a hard time getting all of them. They're, they're getting lots of them, but some are getting through. They do look real. And then of course they immediately advertise jobs or porn or whatever, as soon as they get into the, into the groups. So but what's going on over there? Yeah. So, I mean, what would it be if we didn't end cyber frontiers with me continuing my, my rail against Facebook? Um, so this was also end May time frame, May 23rd, Associated Press uh, reported that fake account removals doubled in six months to 3 billion. 3 billion. Okay, there's 7 billion people on the planet, of which probably 6 billion or so are eligible internet users, which uh, means that 50% of the world's population was represented at its fake accounts in a way. Um, and so... This was over a October to March timeframe, um, which was twice as many as the previous six months. Um, all of them were apparently, nearly all of them were caught before they had a chance to become, quote, active, et cetera. Um, but what that tells me is that the platform is continuing to get abused. There's certainly continued value for people to get on this platform and manipulate it, either through phishing or other campaigns and, and so forth. Um Kind of continues my trend, though, of like I see I see the the death of the Facebook platform as being somewhat imminent. Um, I you've probably seen some reporting on WhatsApp lately that'll make you scratch your head. You've probably seen some other things that Facebook owns that makes you scratch your head. And then, of course, the ultimate head scratcher. So last Cyber Frontiers show, I think I talked a little bit about how I was blown away that you know Facebook who has done a lot of trust damage to their user base, um, suddenly announced they were going to be this great provider of secure encrypted private messaging, which is the antithesis of what Facebook's MO has been with your data all along. 
Um, and then out of left field, as if that wasn't as fantastical enough, um, Facebook announces their own cryptocurrency uh, this week. And it's like, what? Like, really? We're going here? Um, and so they announced this Libra cryptocurrency and all these new use cases and how they won't fully control it, but they'll just kind of get this one vote and it'll be a governance model and they want it to be the future of PayPal. And, you know, this all sounds the super well and good, happy next iteration. I guarantee you this is a giant distraction to like get into some new technology change their branding and their their scope of what facebook does i haven't the faintest idea if i really have this just hit me so i i can't really give a fair assessment other than to say the gut reaction here is like they're getting in the blockchain game a little bit late it doesn't mean they don't have really smart people to go and do these things but I can't trust them with very basic things anymore. Why am I suddenly going to trust them to then deal with all my quote unquote finances? Um, and there's huge risk here. Um, I mean, you think about what happened with some of the data that was leaked from Facebook um, in the last few years, and you can only imagine the type of data that could be at risk if Facebook gets into this kind of financial market in this way. Now, their big spin on this is that they claim that it's going to, quote, Libra will empower fans in underserved markets by enabling financial inclusion. I I know that's a great marketing pitch. I just don't know what that means yet. Like, I don't know how you put this in the hands of underserved populations and how they're going to intrinsically benefit from it. So... Call me a skeptic, but this seems like a huge distraction that may actually just work because it's just so wild and fantastically out of the box of where Facebook has been the last couple of years. They might get some serious attention on this. I don't know, um, but they certainly have done nothing to earn my trust back with their regular stuff. And I, this this doesn't uh, help put them in the plus column in that respect. <laughs> it has been great for cryptocurrency. <laughs> Let's just be honest. Oh, yeah. Well, oh, yes. the crypto markets have been doing pretty well without this, but it they did move a little bit on yeah, this announcement. One uh, back up to almost uh, yeah, nine thousand two hundred as of right now, uh, which is a double uh, what kind of what it had been. And we, uh, June fifth, so two weeks ago, it was about fifteen hundred uh, less. So yeah, yeah, no, it's pretty, it's pretty moved. Big. It's moved nicely. I don't, you know, who knows if that that Facebook it had been moving before this announcement um, pretty nicely, but um, yeah, no, Christian, I actually uh, agree with you. I have been the kind of on the other side of your Facebook uh, negativity of saying, you know, we I use it a ton. I'm in it for work, some of those kinds of things. But um, ah, just getting it's getting harder and harder for me to you know we use it for groups and and yeah. groups are kind of the one enclave because you sure. can control them so tightly yeah. where we actually get good usage out of it uh there's no ads in it for the most part you're not getting my my users we have about 13,000 in a group that I'm in the folks that I kind of help manage there they they have to deal with facebook on a daily basis outside of that and so do i right and I, you know, the other day uh, I was over to Buddy's house on Friday. Uh, we were talking about Traeger grills. <laughs> the next day, my Facebook feed is just full. I didn't search for it. I didn't look for it. I didn't. 
we were just talking about it. And my phone was even in the house. The next day, all kinds of uh, Home Depot ads for, guess what? Traeger Grills. Like, you know, you're just like, ah, damn you, Facebook. Love it. <laughs> so, and I've even turned off the, I mean, I've turned everything off, Christian, to on my phone to it. And um, it's just too much of a coincidence, but it it is, uh, it will be interesting to see where where we go with this it does add an interesting element back to crypto in some regards where it's saying oh okay well now maybe and over the last two years visa mastercard you know even paypal some of these financial companies have spent a bunch of time looking at crypto not doing anything with it but looking at it saying what could be done in these and so quietly behind the scenes a lot have gone on in the blockchain some players have left. Some bad actors have, have moved away. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Maybe this is uh, blockchain 2.0. Hey, you know? if, they, if they really believe it, go for it. Um, well, I don't think this has any, like I said this, I don't know. I don't think Facebook moving to crypto is what's going to do it. Like I, nobody trusts them anyways. Um, but I do, it, it is interesting that I think over time, the blockchain itself has been working out some of the kinks and some of the bugs and has gotten a little more legitimate in the sense of just time and figuring some things out. And like I said, some of the bad actors have dropped out and said, eh, I'm going to move on to the next thing, whatever that is, and has left the community a little more stable. Um, this rise in crypto or in Bitcoin and some of the other coins that go along with it has been pretty um, controlled. And not very, you know, not the crazy up and downs that we saw back in, you know, fall of 2017. So, who knows? With that, with that being said, anything else, Christian? No, I think that's a wrap. Could um, definitely a uh, quick journey through, uh, hopefully, the highlights of the last uh, six weeks. <laughs> but there, there was a lot. So. Highlights or lowlights, right? One yes. of, one of, one of the two. Yeah. Anything, uh, anything you, as you look ahead, anything that from, from that you're keeping your eyes on or some, some things that uh, you're finding interesting that you don't want to go in depth on, but are you, you keeping an eye on? Yeah, I guess that's a, that's a good point. Um, I continue to, I'm definitely keeping my eye on AI news, um, because cyber kind of drowned out the news for me the last few weeks my eye has been a little bit diverted, but I continue to think that, um, when we talk about the big growth curves of technology, right? Like five years ago, cyber was on this big upward growth curve. And I think AI is really starting to hit that same growth curve now. Um, so you're going to see a lot more of the cyber frontiers, so to speak. The frontier is naturally going to be getting more and more defined on those those ridges of the, uh, the AI because there's definitely a lot of movement in that space right now. Um, so I'm, I'm keeping my eyes out there quite keenly. Um, I'm also quite interested to see if any new kind of standards come out, right? We've seen a lot of technology moving and iterating on top of known stacks, known capabilities, et cetera. Um, I'm keeping my eye out for anything out of academia that could be a new way of thinking or a new way of um, optimizing ourselves through some of these problems. Um, I need to find and pull into our next show. There was an article I had seen a few weeks ago on a research paper where a student had 
provided a new mechanism for, so there basically there are, you know, you might've heard of like NP problems in computer science or NP hard problems, or basically problems that would take a computer longer than many, many lifetimes to solve. Um, and there are both solving the problem, right? And then there's also verifying that the solution to the problem is correct. And so computer scientists are actually interested in both. They're interested in the time it takes to solve things that are infinite time for a broad way to think about it in order to solve. And then they're also interested in verifying correct outputs or correct answers in something that's less than infinite time. And this student had come up with a new way to add a whole new class of computer science theory problems and make very simplistic ways to answer um, those those scale of of problems and verify them in very small time using you know everyone's all about oh quantum's going to crack this nut on so many different things but no it was a you know standard conventional binary system that you know unlocked this whole new space of things that previously we weren't able to solve so. I'm kind of waiting to just to see if there's any particular algorithmic advancements that put us to the next place. Cause I, I, I think we're going to continue to get clever engineering wise. There's a lot of things to still engineer and iterate on. Um, I'm waiting to see where the research field moves next. Uh, Cause that's going to kind of tell us how fast or slow we see some of the things we've been talking about in the 10 to 50 year horizon. You, you mentioned AI, and that got me immediately thinking about that Boston Dynamics parody video. Did you see that about the robot? And uh, have, have you seen that video? I have. Okay, so if you're at home, uh, go to Google and or go to YouTube and search Boston Dynamics parody. And in the video, they there's a, they have a robot, and the robot is throwing boxes. You know, it's walking, it's stepping up and stepping down, and it's throwing some boxes around. And then they start attacking it. They throw balls at it. They got a hockey stick. They beat this thing down with like a hockey stick, right? I've seen them and, do that. I guess it's not in this video yet. Well, in this video, it's a little over the top. Like at okay. first, they start like generic enough that you're like, oh, this may be, you know, you, you don't think it's fake. But as they progress through, you're like, oh, my God, are they really doing this at Boston Dynamics? Because they've come out with some pretty wacky videos, right, about oh, yeah. Yeah. some of the robot stuff that they're working on, some of the AI stuff they're working on. And then at the very end, the robot, well, I won't give it away. It won't be a spoiler. Let's just, I, I won't, you'll have to go out and watch the video, but it is hilarious. It's, it's much better if you saw it before you knew it was a parody. Uh, and then, of course, there is now a bunch of videos um, coming out about how they did that, how they filmed that, the CGI that they did. It looks dead real. And uh, at first you're thinking, wow, they're getting really good with these robots. And then you realize it's actually human, <laughs> you know, that's that's uh, putting up with this. But uh, super cool. So when you said AI, I thought, oh, boy, we're still a little ways away from uh, what I think where I think we are. And uh, but uh, Boston Dynamics, thank you for that bit of humor, a little alarming at first. I felt bad for the robots for a second. I was like, wow. OK, guys, do you really need to be that angry? Lots of um, uh, lots of comments about this is how the robot, this is when the robots take over when we start doing these kinds of things to them. They're definitely coming back after us. So uh, pretty funny um, and pretty cool. With that, we'll remind everyone, uh, theaverageguy.tv, powered by Maple Grove. Uh, maybe not powered by robots, but 
soon to be someday. Maple Grove Partners, web hosting, get secure, reliable, high-speed hosting from people that you know and you trust. For more information, visit Maple Grove Partners. You got uh, you got room for a few more people over there, Christian? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're, okay. we're at capacity and ready for uh, new orders. So. All right. Sounds good. MapleGrovePartners.com. We welcome your questions. You can send us an email. I'm Jim at TheAverageGuy.tv. Although, just send them to Christian. Christian at TheAverageGuy.tv. And uh, we'd love to get those answered on the next show. I want to thank you for joining us. With that, we'll say goodbye, everybody. Good night.